0: Welcome to Radiant Church. My name is Andrew. I'm the lead pastor. We're so glad you could join us today from wherever you're watching, listening and from. And if this is your first time joining us, hey, go to RadiantChurchSC.com and click I'm new. You fill out that short form online for us as a way of saying thank you. We're going to donate $5 to one of the nonprofits that's listed. We have reached the final portion of our study in Daniel. So just a reminder, uh, you can catch any missed teachings. Just go back and listen to these teachings again on our website, Church S C slash media That's where you want to go. And you can view and listen to those messages, and you can be sure to download the message notes. Do that, too, so you can follow along with us, okay? Daniel 10 through 12 contains the final vision that Daniel receives. And Daniel 10 introduces us to the circumstances surrounding the vision. Daniel 11 reveals the content of the vision itself. We're going to talk about that some here today. And then Daniel 12 has the final dialogue between Daniel and the angelic being that he's speaking. With. Now, as we're going to see next week, there's a big focus on eternity in chapter 12. And so for the first time in the Old Testament, we're going to read about a second resurrection where the godly are given eternal life and the wicked are condemned for eternity. But uh, let me lay out how we're going to tackle Daniel 11 because there's a huge amount of information in the contents of this vision. So. There really isn't anything remotely like it in the Old Testament. In fact, the historical accuracy of this vision is just, it's unreal. It's unparalleled. It's full of details on events that are going to happen some 200 plus years after Daniel receives the vision itself. But we cannot cover all the details here. So there is a separate audio podcast, no video, just audio, where I'm going to walk you through all the historical details and help you see what was playing out in Israel and the region. During that time, that chapter 11 covers. Uh, But let's get an overview of what happens in Daniel 11 as far as the vision goes. Then I want to tie everything together here for you at the end, as far as you know the Lord and applications concerned. So let's read the first few verses and see the chaos that kind of unfolds. Daniel 11, verse number two. Now then. I'll reveal the truth to you. Three more Persian kings will reign to be succeeded by a fourth, far richer than the others. He'll use the wealth that he has to stir up everyone to fight against the kingdom of Greece. And then a mighty king will rise to power who will rule with great authority and accomplish everything he sets out to do. But at the height of his power, his kingdom will be broken and it'll be divided into four parts. It will not be ruled by the king's descendants, nor will the kingdom hold the authority that it once had for his empire, will be uprooted and given to others. So Cyrus is the current ruler in Persia. Three more kings are going to rise, and then a fourth ruler comes who is greater than all the others and kind of stirs up a fight against Greece. And I think sometimes we forget just how connected and involved the Bible is with the events of history. So if you read the story of Esther, in the very beginning in Esther chapter 1, you find that King Xerxes, he's throwing a massive party, which lasts 180 days. He brings in all the military advisors and nobles for this big celebration, which seems kind of odd. That's a that's a huge party. (laughs) It lasts forever, right? What's the purpose? Well, scholars believe Xerxes was honoring his military commanders and raising money from the nobles and preparing to send his army off on a campaign to fight the Greeks. So Esther comes into the picture much later into the story, and you know, there's a lot of unrelated events that happen in her story, but from the very beginning, we get this picture of a military campaign being you know, uh, raised. And so Alexander the Great, now he's the king talked about in our passage whose power is is broken at its height, and uh, he defeats the Persians, right, but he dies suddenly while he's in India, and his kingdom is divided among his generals and broken into four separate kingdoms. The focus of Daniel 11 from here on out as on two of those kingdoms, the king of the north and the king of the south, because that conflict's going to involve the Jews in Judea for, for centuries. The north is the Seleucid Empire. Uh, It would eventually stretch from Turkey to Judea to India. The south is Egypt. So keep that in mind as you read the names north and south in this chapter. Uh, Verses 5 through 20, they give a a great detailed account of the Syrian wars, which were a series of six wars fought between the north and the south, the Seleucids or Syria and Egypt. Uh, Really the rest of Daniel 11 reads almost like the Game of Thrones, just the way power grabs and betrayal and twists and turns. And if you really wanna know more about what happened in those wars and how that vision gives great detailed, historical accuracy hundreds of years in advance, make sure, again, you listen to the audio podcast. You can get that on whatever platform you listen to. When you finish this message, it'll be available for you. Just begin to, to click listen, okay? With each conflict and encounter, uh, the people of God suffer. And Israel constantly passes back and forth like a ping pong ball until we get to verses 14 and 15. The year is 200 BC. The place is the Battle of Panium, which is Caesarea Philippi in the New Testament. The north wins a big victory over the south. And from here on, Israel stops being passed around like a ragdoll and remains in control of one kingdom. That sets up the arrival of a really notorious figure in the book of Daniel and also in Jewish history, uh, Antiochus IV Epiphanes. We talked about him in great detail in Daniel chapter 8, a little bit more about him in Daniel chapter 9. Look at verse 21. The next to come to power will be a despicable man, this is Antiochus, who is not in line for royal succession. He'll slip in when least expected and take over the kingdom by flattery and intrigue. And before him, great armies will be swept away, including a covenant prince. With deceitful promises, he'll make various alliances, and he'll become strong despite only having a handful of followers. So Antiochus IV, he, he's the villain in Jewish history for multiple reasons. The crown prince here moves in verse 22 refers to the, the removal of the high priest who was actually pro-South or pro-Egyptian in his political leanings. That replacement is a guy named Jason who essentially buys enough influence to be named high priest. Now. None of that's biblical, and that's not how the succession of the priesthood was supposed to work. So you could argue that Antiochus really poisons the well here, and it doesn't get any better because the priesthood is seen as corrupt in the New Testament when Jesus comes on to the scene. Isn't that interesting? So look at what else that he does. Look at verse 31. His army will take over the temple fortress and pollute the sanctuary and put a stop to the daily sacrifices, and he'll set up the sacrilegious object that causes desecration. He'll flatter and win over those who have violated the covenant, but the people who know their God will be strong and resist him. Wise leaders will be given; uh, will give instruction to many, but these teachers, well, they're going to die by fire and sword, they'll be jailed and robbed, and during these persecutions, little help will arrive. And many who join them, they won't be sincere. And some of the wise will fall victim to persecution. So Antiochus plunders the temple. He builds a fortress called the Acre to monitor activity on the Temple Mount, like secret police type stuff. He stops the daily sacrificial worship. He erects a sacrilegious object that causes desecration. We don't know what that was, but it was probably an idol, perhaps a statue of Zeus. Um, We do know that he sacrificed pigs on the temple altar. And so obviously if you do that, uh, that kind of stuff's gonna enrage the Jewish people, right? So intense persecution brings out, insurrection breaks out, thousands are killed, many more thousands sold in the slavery as Antiochus wages war against the Jewish people, but he is defeated. We know from Daniel chapter 8 that we learn that he's brought down, not by human hands, meaning it wasn't the Hasmoneans who defeated him, it was actually, you know, God who worked in and through uh, the Jewish people to defeat Antiochus. But Daniel chapter 11 doesn't really seem to talk a lot about his defeat. You know, the last passage we're going to look at is one of the hardest passages in in all of Scripture to interpret because it's not really clear who's the focal point. So it it doesn't appear to be Antiochus because from what we know of his life and events surrounding it, um, what's what's laid out doesn't quite fit. So who is the passage referring to? Well, that's what makes it kind of interesting. Look at verse number 40. Then in the time of the end, the king of the south will attack the king of the north, the king of the north. invade various lands. He'll sweep through them like a flood. He'll enter the glorious land of Israel and many nations will fall, but Moab and Edom and the best part of Ammon will escape and he'll conquer many countries and even Egypt will not escape. He'll gain control over the gold and the silver and treasures of Egypt and the Libyans and Ethiopians will be his servants. But then news from the east will and the north will alarm him and he'll set out in great anger to destroy and obliterate many. He'll stop between the glory holy mountain and the sea and will pitch his royal tents and while he's there his time will suddenly run out and no one will help him." There actually isn't any historical account that we can accurately tie to this passage. And that's what makes it so unusual because, you know, we, we get this great detail of information all throughout chapter 11 until we get to verse 40. <laughs> and, and there's a lot of debate about what that passage points to. I think it has to do with the end, right? Like the actual end. And a clue is given to us in verse 40. We see this phrase, time of the end. And what follows this passage 40 through 45 in verses 1 through 4 of chapter 12 is an account of eternal resurrection. So it's seen that we're dealing with with the end here, and if we are dealing with the end, then this passage probably has something to do with the rise of another figure we've talked about in the series, the Antichrist. Now remember, imagery is, is used often in apocalyptic prophecy. It's possible that this passage is using what's familiar to Daniel and his vision to paint a picture of the future. But regardless, verses 40 through 45, they point to a violent end to history where destruction of pride and wickedness will take place. And we're given a lot of history in Daniel chapter 11. And he he receives this vision that's primarily focused on what's going to happen to his people in the coming centuries with a possible glimpse, maybe, of what's going to happen in the distant future. So you read a chapter like this and you say, okay, Well, why why is it important? Why can't we just skip it? And I'm gonna tell you why you can't skip this. Let's start with biblical prophecy for a moment. It's being revealed here in chapter 11. I want you to think of biblical prophecy as a collapsible telescope. So at the end of that telescope, if you peer through it, you can see the object that you want to see, right? But to get there, you have to depend on a series of mechanical builds that build on each other to magnify the object. We often look at prophecy as pointing to a singular event. We pour all of our focus into that one event instead of looking at a series of separate but related events that actually build on each other over time to bring bring that prophecy to fulfillment perfect example of this is the arrival of Jesus and His death and resurrection. We see that, you know, what Jesus did, but, you know, Abraham saw the stars in the sky and the promise of being a blessing to the nations. Moses named a a prophet who would be greater than him that would come later on. Jeremiah saw the destruction of Jerusalem and the return of God's people, which would lead to a future time where God would know His people in a relationship manner. He'd write their law on their hearts. All these things here lead to Jesus. So throughout the chapter, and really throughout all of Scripture, you see this tension play out between God's control and man's will. For Daniel and his readers, they knew that God was in control of history. History is not meaningless. And knowing that God is in control, but doesn't make it meaningless either. Daniel and his readers saw that God was in control of human history, and they saw it as a positive because it meant that things would turn out right in the end. It may not turn out right in their lifetime, but in the end, as in eternity, everything would work as it should. Which begs a question, does God's control mean that humanity has none? This is a, a timeless argument, and I, and I think its longevity tells us that we're never truly going to know a definitive answer on this side of heaven, but it, it's just beyond our understanding. But the reality is, divine sovereignty and human responsibility, they do work together. The Bible doesn't detail or provide enough answers as to how that works, and that, that's what frustrates us, right? But the Bible shows us that it's God is in control, and humanity has to make decisions for which we're responsible. Philippians 2:12 through 13, look at this. Dear friends, you've, you've always followed my instructions. This is Paul speaking here when I was with you. And now that I'm away, it's even more important. Work hard to show the result of your salvation, human responsibility here. Obeying God with deep reverence and fear, for God is working in you, giving you the desire and the power to do what pleases Him. That's the sovereignty, right? So in other words, we work out our salvation, and so does God as He shapes us. God controls history. Humanity acts in history. Gideon could have taken the Midianites out with 32,000 men, but God trimmed it down to 300. He still had to act, though. That 300 showed that God was in control. Goliath could have been zapped from heaven with lightning, right? But God uses the courage of David, who acts, believing God is in control, and a giant is defeated. God's control and man's will work together then, and I'm telling you, man, they're working together right now. And because God's in control, he works everything out for the good for those who follow him. Look at Romans 8, 28. And we know that God causes everything to work together for the good of those who love God and are called according to his purpose for them. For God knew his people in advance and he chose them to become like his son so that his son would be the firstborn among many brothers and sisters. This is salvation here, right? And having chosen them, he called them to come to him. And having called them, he gave them right standing with himself. And having given them right standing, he gave them his glory. The following verses show the effects of being firmly rooted in Christ. No one in verse 31 can stand against us, Paul says. He writes this letter to the Romans. Uh, No one can condemn us in verse 34. Uh, Verses 35 through 39 tell us that nothing can separate us from God's love. Why? Because God's in control. It looks like Babylon and Persia, like they were in control in Daniel's day, but they weren't. It looks like Antiochus IV was in control of Israel in the second century B.C., but he wasn't. It appeared Rome had the upper hand in the first century when Christ arrived, but it didn't. You see the pattern here? You know, God's in control. Political parties, they're not in control. The courts are not in control. The culture is not in control. No, No matter what we face in this life, we can be sure that it's God who's in control. Because God is in control, we can have joy when struggles come. The book of Daniel is a call for God's people to remain resolute in their love and obedience to him in spite of the turmoil that they face. But does God's control diminish us? Does it render our actions meaningless? No, they're a comfort in a dark world. See, Daniel 11 reminds us that it's not divine sovereignty which leads to oppression. It's actually human autonomy. As humans, we're finite. We're corrupted by sin. Whenever we give ourselves over to sin, we open the door for its consequences. No one's immune from this, not even the church that has its own dark history of oppression and coercion. That leads me to a final word of warning as we tie a bow on Daniel 11. Rely on God's will and not your own. Watch! You don't become so panicked over the moral chaos in our culture that you try to impose a coercive lifestyle change on people who aren't ready for that, and they're not willing to make that change in the first place. When we act in that manner, we're not relying on God's control. Instead, we're taking matters into our own hands, and that rarely works out well. So, may we prepare our hearts, as Daniel did, and seek God's direction and guidance first, and then take action. Doing so ensures that we rely on God's power and control and we act in a responsible manner that allows ourselves to be used by the Lord to bring people from darkness into light. We end Daniel next week with a look at eternity in chapter 12. Remember, if you'd like a much more detailed teaching on chapter 11, all the historical events, be sure to listen to the audio podcast. It's called Daniel 11 in Detail. That's the episode name, okay? Let me pray for you before we get out of here. Father, we love you. Thank you for those who are watching and listening right now. Thank you, Lord, for uh, Daniel and and just the foresight he had to record the visions and and all the the dealings he had with you. We thank you for chapter 11. It's got a lot of history in it. Uh, There's a lot of history that deals with what, what really for us today is ancient history. But nonetheless, we see in it that you're in control that your sovereignty is at work. And when you're in control, man, nothing can separate us from your love. When you're in control, the enemy can't have victory. He might fight and he he might battle with us, but man, he can't win out the day. When you're in control, God, we have joy. When you're in control, every struggle we have, God, we know we're going to come out on top because things are going to work out for your good and our good and your glory. So thank you, Lord, that you are in control and reminding us today of the incredible sovereignty that you have, but also reminding us of our responsibility. It's our job to act. It's our job to step out in faith. and our job to, to, to act in faith. It's our job to believe. Our job to obey. Our job to love. Our job to minister. We have a responsibility to act in connection, in conjunction with the sovereignty that you have. So remind us, Lord, that we're not mindless robots. We have a part to play here. And everything that we do is for your glory and is for your victory and for your kingdom. And I pray that, that our will aligns with your sovereignty in our lives. Thank you for who you are, for what you're going to do, for what you have already done in our hearts. And I pray and ask all this in your name. Amen. Amen. Man, thanks for-